welcome to Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I am your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Jason Tagmar, game designer and owner of Button Shy Games. Button Shy is famously known for his 18-card pocket-sized games with the latest The Last Lighthouse currently on Kickstarter. Jason, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I almost caught you Stagmire there for a second. Hey, oh, the, the Tagmire we make you know little tiny games they make super popular games close <laughs> both titans of the industry i guess eh? <laughs> exactly so uh jason welcome it's uh i i've i've heard about you for quite some time i've only been in the industry for about six years but um everybody talks about these these pocket size games and uh, we're going to get into it on today's podcast uh i first want to start off like how long you've been doing this for so Button Shy itself has been making uh, 18 card wallet games since the first was 2014. And then a couple months, maybe a year later, we decided we were doing them every month. So since I believe the first month of 2016, January 2016, we've done one a month, one, wow. one new wallet game every month. Yeah, I'm sure you have plenty of time uh, available now. Eh? Oh, yeah, all of it, <laughs> all that time. <laughs> Now, I was reading somewhere like 2007 is kind of when you first cut your teeth. Does that kind of sound right? Probably. Like I started making like little self-published games around then. Um, probably designing in 2007, releasing in 2008 and 2009. Yeah. And kind of button shy formed as like a previous iteration around that time. And then four, three or four years later became kind of the button shy it is now finally grew to what it's at and what were you doing before that like before you got into game design what was um, your so like the thing that kind of led me to it was probably like like music like any like creative arts like um for jobs i worked in a law office oh wow um, you know i made buttons for bands um <laughs> which the company was called button shy that made the buttons for bands um and we kind of shifted that over to become this just because the story is that I paid 40 bucks for the logo. And when I stopped making buttons for bands, I didn't want the logo and cool name to go to waste. So we moved it over to Button Shy. But I uh, worked at a law office and played in bands and kind of got that creative itch through music and production on, you know, CDs and shirts and stuff like that. And kind of shifted it all over the years, all of my creative efforts into board gaming. Now, had you been board gaming before then? Like, was it something you. Yeah, grew I mean, I'd always. Or? I'd always played games growing up. I would play, you know, silly Mattel games and whatever weird big long box board game was available. Um, video games a ton as well. And then kind of as a teenager, I started when I got a job, I would just go to Toys R Us afterwards and go shop the board game section, and, you know, buy Hero Escape, which is sitting behind me um, and whatever else was kind of available at Toys R Us at the time. And, uh thrift stores i would go to a ton of thrift stores and just pick up whatever games they had so i'd always been playing uh pretty much my whole life and then what gave you kind of the itch to start doing your own like design that first game you started designing and it was 2007 so i'm always looking at everything and trying to figure out how to make it no matter what it is like you know if it's like uh like a shirt or whatever i'm trying to figure out like the process of of product development essentially and with games 
I found a company that made print-on-demand card games back in like 2007, 2008, 2009. And they would just make cards. They would print on cards. Um, print a, Not print a tuck box. You would get a tuck box and they printed a wrap that went around it. Mm-hmm. So it was just like this paper wrap that went around the tuck box and like was glued on. And I was just like, this is cool. I should figure out how to make some games. And then made like four games very quickly. Got them printed. Would sell them at like conventions. They were awful. I mean, like completely awful. Um, but it was just definitely the start of like, what does producing a board game consist of? What does producing my own game? What does designing a game and selling it? None of that was like, how do you make a game? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, how do you make a good game or how do you play test the game? It was all just how do you make a game? How do you physically create and make a product of a game? And then over years would figure out how to make a game better and play well and fun and uh, and still learning all that stuff. And were you doing like, I, I noticed there was like some game crafter competitions you're part of and so forth. Like, did yeah. you start kind of micro like that with like the, the small run manufacturers or. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. it was always, it was always about how can we get this made? Like, what's the point of it if I can't physically reproduce it? Yeah. Uh, it was kind of before print and play was a big thing because if print and play was bigger back then, probably wouldn't have to worry so much about production, just, just getting it out to people. But in order for anybody to play a game in 2007, 2010, whatever, you had to find a way to produce it or bring it to them at like conventions. So Game Crafter was huge in that because, you know, they did all the work for you and they made it possible for you to make a game and have it out there. Uh, and then I just looked at anything like that. There were a couple other print on demand services looked at weird things like at one point we printed business card. It was how do you make a game with as few different cards as possible? Because if it used, let's say it used 54 cards, but 30 of them were identical for whatever reason, um, you could just print business cards and print a thousand of that business card. And now you have, you know, a whole bunch of copies of this game. So we would do print runs of, it had a game that used like six cards. They were kind of like tiles. And I printed them all as business cards and then would just collate the business cards and make the games out of that. But it was really just whatever grassroots way or small publisher like the Game Crafter way to kind of get a game out there. So let me just back up to so I clearly understand what you just said there. So you would print a, like one card basically would be that business card and you would create like get like 18 orders yeah. of business cards so, and you would collate exactly. them then? Uh, yeah, so the... You can only get a thousand of a business card or whatever, yeah. 250 or 500, a thousand. So I would just design the game to that. So I made a game that was six tiles, like six different, like kind of like, uh, like it was like a battling game, six different tiles. And I had the six characters and you had the six characters. So I just printed a thousand of each of the six, um, and would separate them. You know, each game got so many of each one. And then it had like a special like long like board, but yeah. the long board was just like a double business card. Um, so just like just figuring out weird production methods. And it was cheap that way because business cards are what, like 20 bucks for a thousand. Yeah. So for I believe it was like three hundred and fifty dollars. I had everything I needed to make a thousand of the game um, just because it was only business cards and. It didn't include the boxes. We kickstarted to make the boxes. I remember first ca- campaign ever was we did a Kickstarter just to make boxes because we printed all the business cards and we were ready to go. It's so silly. It's that's so, crazy. Like, it's cool though to hear the, the bootstrapping behind that though, right? Yeah. Like, saying how I mean, are we going to just figure this out? It was really like 
what can we do to make a game like whatever we what's what's within our reach was really where it started yeah and that's all domestic then so those would have been made domestically then right yeah it was and the boxes were like those little like folding cardboard boxes that like chocolates would come in yeah. you know like it, so i would just look up like gift gift stores made boxes and they printed on this they printed a cool like it's kind of like our wallets are a single print like a screen print Yep. But that was like a foil print. Like it was really fancy mm. looking like on these box covers that just held a bunch of business cards inside of it. And it was so silly. How much did you raise on that first Kickstarter? Oh, like 500 bucks. And that was great. It was like, yeah. holy, you know, this is this is a thing. It was I, I think we asked for 350 and we might have got like 600 or something. And it was just like that was successful. And, you know, it was before Kickstarter was anything because even my um my game Pixel Lincoln came out in 2012 on Kickstarter. Yeah. And it raised, I believe, like $41,000. And it was the 37th highest campaign of all time at the, t at the time. Wow. At, at, at $41,000. You know, it's like that was m incredibly massive for a Kickstarter campaign at the time, which is so different than nowadays. So you're part of the OG, right? Like you're that first kind yeah, of. Yeah. I mean, it was early. Life. It was before like before a lot of things like it was before, stretch goals were barely even a thing back then um it, just the whole page was just it was all different like you it was you were funding games that you didn't think were going to be successful back then and now you like shy away from games that you don't think are going to be successful like it's such a like it, it was just like you were funding creators back then instead of like pre-ordering board games yeah, it really has evolved, right? Like it started off as uh, this is is what I'm looking to create and help me get there. Yeah, exactly. So now people won't accept that. And it's kind of like yeah. this kind of catch-22 because you hear people complaining and saying, oh, Kickstarter is just a pre-order system. Yeah. But those are the same people that are feeding into it that are hypercritical if the game isn't 100% yeah. polished and yep. everything isn't 100% buttoned down and uh, before yeah, they go so... to, uh, to, to, to launch, right? Yeah, it used to be like, stretch goals weren't a thing because it was like, I'm just trying to make this game. And, and uh, now it's just, it's such a difference where if something feels like it won't succeed, it just doesn't like, it's just, nobody wants it, you know? So it really has become like a pre-order service. The little guys, it's harder for them to, to kind of break into there. Everyone says they're a first time creator. I'm not going to back it. It's like, well, that's why they're here. <laughs> they are yeah. first time. We were all first time creators. But, yeah. I mean, it just shifted. And, you know, those people have other avenues as of now. And Game Crafter is really good for that. And, and I guess building your audience and then shifting over to Kickstarter and doing your first one and crossing your fingers and hoping everybody accepts you. But it's Kickstarter. It's what it should be. Yeah. Well, even with a Kickstarter, like I find it's, uh, you know, it, even this whole day one thing, right? If you don't fund oh, it yeah. day one, then people are jumping ship. Yeah, I mean, like, and you're and as a creator, you almost want to cancel because you know how impactful that day one is for us. I mean, for us, our day ones are always never a problem, just because we have a really strong mailing list and a strong history, and we have a really low um, funding level just because of our method of like hand creating games. Yeah, but when I talk to other people, I tell them like, if you don't hit like 70 percent on day one, it's not going to happen, and before you launch find your you know figure out what it's going to take to hit 60 to 70 percent on day one like know yeah. who your first hundred backers are like by name you know just so you know that you're going to make this amount and if you don't just the way that kickstarter works the metrics that are built into it the way that it notifies all the backers friends and followers and everything and gets them on 
none of that kicks in when you don't have any backers you don't have a lot and uh it's just it's and then you show is unfunded and then nobody wants to back it yeah so yeah it's it's just kind of perpetual machine right that feeds itself and uh it's very yeah, mathematical it's, good, it's great and when it's not good it's it's terrible yeah <laughs> it's well, scary yeah. and it's the math too right so you can do the math ahead of time based on the number of opt-ins and people yep. have signed up and so exactly. forth you can say okay reasonably this is what i think i should be able to do on on you know on kind of the low end right and then yep. obviously lock and timing and all these who else is running and all these other factors come into play but the very you know kind of starting math is pretty straightforward which i don't know if a lot of people yeah. realize that right yeah you i mean it's just to me it's always you know 300 backers on any campaign is sort of like a make or break based off of what you're selling for and what you're buying it for yeah. so if you don't hit 300 backers it's usually a problem and if you're not projecting to hit 300 backers it's usually a problem and if you just skate by at 300 backers it's still kind of a problem yeah. So like figuring out that number um, and 300 is a lot for somebody just starting out, you know, and a lot of people they'll say, I failed. What do I do? And I just say, like, take a year off and find your 300 day one backers or, you know, campaign backers or whatever. Um, but that's the number that I've always used is we've been under that and we've went forward anyway. And it was never a great idea because if you order a thousand, you've got 700 left to get out there and you only did 300 on the most successful way for somebody to get games out there. The most impactful way is Kickstarter. Like you'll be stuck with those 700 for life. You know, if you, sell, <laughs> if you sell 300 on Kickstarter and then you go to sell the rest yourself, I mean, you might sell 30 in the next year, you know? Yeah. So like hitting that 300 number is sort of, it's, you know, it's sort of not great at the same time. It's sort of a clue that maybe this isn't a great idea because I'm printing a thousand. What am I going to do with them? What was a tipping point for you where you realized, okay, this, this is, cause I assume this is a full-time job, like that button yeah, shy yeah. is now a full-time company, right? Um, that what, at some point you would have gone from, okay, I'm, I'm doing other stuff to, to basically pay the bills to, okay, now this is, this is my gig, right? This is my full-time gig. What was that yeah. tipping point for you? It was, it was pretty clearly, we did our campaign for our game Sprawlopolis in 2017 or 18, probably 17. And it hit like $107,000, which was probably more than double our next highest. You know, we would, we would hit 20,000 it would be amazing. So yeah. we hit like 107,000. It really took off and I quit my job, but I got a part-time job and I only quit my job because we hand assembled the games. Like it was like, this yeah. isn't enough money for me to keep going. It's just, it was a couple things. It was, um, I'm putting in 40 hours a week on top of my day job with button shy, I can't make button shy better unless I can put in more hours or, you know, really make this work. So what I'm putting in now is like the peak, it's either going to stop at this or it, I take this opportunity and just only do this. But the real reason for quitting was we handed some of the games. We couldn't fulfill it <laughs> if I was working, you know, we had to hand assemble like 5,000 Sprawlopolis games. And it was just me and my wife at the time and then mail them out and then everything else. So I was just like, I'm going to quit. But I took on a part-time job just to be safe because I was worried about it. Yeah. And then I quit that like a month or two later because it was just way too much just to manage it all and make it happen. But also keep going with the next game and the next game and the next one because if if we don't do that, it all kind of falls apart if we don't have this line of games. Like the line is so strong feeding each other 
whether you know Sprawlopolis is way more successful than others or not, it's still required. Like our our Patreon would would get a game every month, and we have a lot of people on Patreon who subscribe and get those games. So I had to keep the next game going while doing Sprawlopolis, and then the one after that, and the one after that. So yeah, it was. I quit then, and uh, it's been great since it's, it worked out. It could have it could have been the other way. And it's entirely now licensed uh, designs that you that you guys do. Yeah, I in house we've done very few designs in the past couple of years, but um, we have a lot of like designers that kind of come back. So they're not quite in house, but they're recurring, you know, button shy previous button shy designers and stuff like that. Um, and some of the designers of those kind of work on development for other games. So there's a little blur of what's like in house and what's out. Um, but yeah, we haven't, I haven't designed much in a long time. I did design one this year. So, that's and it. have you brought on help for like the development side? Cause you know, as yeah. you know, that's hugely time consuming. Right. And if you're doing 12 games a year, which is insane, um, right. <laughs> how do you handle that? So we have a good like playtest network and we have a couple like lead testers that kind of run the testing network, which blends into development. Yeah. If you're leading the testing, you're answering questions, and you're sort of doing some problem solving, it becomes a little bit of development right there. But there were two things. One was we try to sign games that don't need that much development. You know, when we, we get a lot of games through contests and challenges, and we'll see 150 games and pick one. So it's really easy to narrow down that one that needs the least development, that feels really strong. Yeah. Um, so we try to sign as many of those as possible, but we don't always. So there's sometimes some really good ones. Um, so we brought on um, Dustin Dobson, who designed Skulls of Sedlick for us, co-designed Rove, Battlecrest, all these games for us. Um, he's been helping out with early development on the 2024 games, and that's been awesome because we have the testers, the lead testers, they're helping out. Dustin's in there, I'm in there, um, and that's been that's been really good. And then with it, like, but you still have like graphic design and, and getting art. Like, do you have a bank of artists? We have an in-house graphic designer. We have yeah. artists that we just kind of use per project and it's new like ones, old ones. Yeah. Yeah. We, we bring people back if, if, you know, things work out really nicely. Um, but yeah, it is a constant, you know, we have all 12 games for this. We have a monthly game every month this year and all 12 of them are signed. All 12 of them have art already, I believe not full art, but, the majority of them have full art and graphic design and everything. And we're quite ahead. Um, and then starting to sign next year's games now. And still hand assembling these games. Right below me downstairs. They're assembling right now. Yeah. It's so, crazy. Uh, was there any, is there any point at all where you look at this and say, you know, like uh, the printing I'm sure is done offshore. Or is that done domestically? Both. It just depends. We have two different printers. One's yeah. off, one's here. And then the assembly, as you know, would be so much quicker, faster, cheaper just to do offshore. Is there a reason why? Is it because it's part of now the brand? Is that why? There's Yeah. So it is part of the brand. Just we touch everything, which is kind of like different. You know, everything yeah. has kind of been through us. And uh, But the kind of the background for it and the reason it still exists is because we're doing a game every month. And if we order in China, for example, we need to be six months ahead on every month of that. So here we can get the games in, assemble them, hand, get them out within just weeks. So that monthly thing 
really makes China like impossible where we'd have yeah. to be six months ahead on all orders. We'd have to group them together. So they were large enough orders to be profitable. Um, I don't know if you've seen how we order, but we'll order a deck of cards. that's like this big and it'll have like eight games in there. So we'll split that into each oh, of wow. those eight games and then make the wallets. So we take advantage of like bulk ordering that way because we're just, you know, one deck this big is almost, you know, it's not double the price of a deck this big. It's only slightly, you know, slightly more. Yeah. So we can kind of pad those orders and make the most of them and make our games as affordable as possible. But uh, we're just not far enough ahead to do China. Like I guess this year we're as far ahead as we've ever been, but yeah. we're still doing late development and balance on all of those up to the, up to the gun. This is insane. And then is there like a mega box that you guys have, like where someone can hold like all of their copies of the games or is that coming? We had, a, we had a bag called like the game, uh, a friend who runs a company called that does game hall bags. And we made a yep. bag that holds 18 games, just like 18 cards. Um, but it's close to sold out and we're looking at what we're going to do next to kind of change it up a little bit. That's crazy. Now with the last lighthouse, this is the most recent campaign that you you've launched. It's on Kickstarter right now for those uh, who want to check it out. I would encourage them to go to the Kickstarter and just type in uh, lighthouse or the lots lighthouse. Either way, you're going to find it. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Um, I'm going to put this in Canadian dollars because uh, it's the only mm -hmm. way I can see it because uh, I'm in Canada, but you're almost at $129,000 on this campaign. So congrats on that. That's amazing for uh, a tiny game like this. You got 3,440 backers still four days ago. So you still have the back end hockey stick that's coming. So I'm sure it's going to end somewhere around probably 140, 150. Um, you must be incredibly proud of that. How, how's it feeling, uh, to have, uh, these games doing this kind of scale now pretty consistently for yeah. you? This one, this one specifically broke a lot of records for us. Like yeah. it's, it already passed our highest one from last year, from the whole year. Um, and it had a lot of like day records where like day three was bigger than day two, which has never happened for us. And like each day is like the highest. We usually do really well on day one. And then because we have such a huge mailing list, it just slows down a lot after that. And this one's been yeah stronger than all the others so that's been great the fact that it's the beginning of the year that we kicked it off this well has been great all those are are really good especially because this game uh was bumped from kickstarter a few times as we wrapped up development as we uh had some trouble getting some review copies together uh we it, it was an older version so we had to like get new review copies mm. and everything so it it was kind of a long time coming and a struggle and after that it feels really good that it's been so successful as opposed to if it was the other way around that struggle would just feel you know uh, not worth it and all that so it feels really good and it's really good to start this year because we have a really strong year and this is mm -hmm. just the first one so it feels great to be that successful you know at the start of it and what do you think are the key contributing factors to this one being kind of one of your strongest uh showings yet so uh art is the art is great art always sells more than anything else it's the sixth in this simply solo line by scott elms mm. so uh it's built up its own customer base kind of on that uh i found out that there were there's like a kickstarter launch like email or or reddit thing that goes out on on um every like week and it shows the new new releases yep. and nobody else launched on tuesday because it was the second day of the year so i think us being the only game that really like worked our butts off over the holiday break uh 
like we really worked our butts off with the holly break trying to get this up when i guess everybody else was off uh paid off because like nothing else launched you are the new news right yeah so that helps um you know we had a good amount of reviewers this time around we don't always do we're not always that far ahead to, to like get review copies out sometimes we'll just pop it up on kickstarter and cross our fingers and obviously not doing that is better <laughs> you know it's yeah. the better choice if you can take the time and get the review copies out so i think it's all all of those um and solo solo sells yeah solo definitely is taking, especially since covid i find like yeah, exactly. if you can include a solo version of your game i mean don't just slap it on for the sake of slapping it on but if it can make sense in kind of how the game is designed uh it's kind of a no-brainer um, yeah. Can you tell our audience a little bit of how this last lighthouse plays, like the the essence of how yeah. you play this game? So um, you have this lighthouse that you kind of you're you're managing it, and you're going through all these nightmares um, and horrors that are just kind of plaguing you as you're as you're managing this lighthouse. So the whole game is a line of cards. Um, the lighthouse is at the far end, and it has a little health tracker that slides above it. And the row has either nightmares or tools. And the nightmares are going to to mess with you and damage this lighthouse, and your tools are kind of going to get in the way, prevent the nightmares from happening, and give you special abilities. So if a nightmare, so you play down a tool, uh, or you attack the nightmares, and everything has little ranges on it and how much they attack for, so you'll kind of try to knock some of the nightmares out of the row, then the nightmares are going to try to attack the lighthouse. If they do, it loses health. If you're... Um, tools are in the way and kind of block that because of the ranges between them. Uh, the tool will just go away. It'll be discarded instead of the lighthouse taking damage. So your tools act as a buffer. They also take some damage and say, and prevent things from hitting the lighthouse. And then a new nightmare comes out every turn. So the threat just never ends. Um, and then the first card on the left moves to the other side. So if it's a tool, it's discarded and you just lose it. And if it's a nightmare, it kind of shifts. It's called the tide. The whole thing kind of shifts. So that keeps the game moving. So you can't, you know, put a whole bunch of tools out there and then they just block the lighthouse forever. Um, and some of the abilities are just like crushing. It's like, oh, the, you know, the nightmares attack twice this turn or whatever. And then some of the, the tools or the nightmares don't attack at all. So every one of those just like breaks the rules in big ways. It's that kind of like uh, there's some game design trick to where you make your game really simple and then all of your um, special abilities are just the best thing you can imagine or in the in solo co-op the worst thing you can imagine so they all like break things in in big good or big bad ways um, and you just have to keep it going until the deck runs out which is pretty quick it's only eight cards or whatever 10 yeah. cards so you're just going through rounds and just kind of protecting this lighthouse from hitting zero the artwork is awesome yeah, and then there's just like difficulty measures where you start with four nightmares out or you start with three nightmares and flip one to a tool or you start with two nightmares and two are tools. So there's just a whole how, you know, bad do you want it you know, from the start? Yeah, it's cool. I like this whole dual purpose card too, right? How you can flip it one way or the other. Yeah, you sort of have to do that with our, our games or else, yeah. you know, they get a little narrow quickly. So sometimes people go way overboard and, you know, they'll have four purposes for each card and. I'm like, that's when we start to lose people. But this one hits that nice sweet spot of the right about in information in front of you and and can still make it look pretty and all that. No, that's awesome. Um, I got to imagine you're probably getting flooded with uh, 
you know, game designers uh, coming to you with their, with their titles now, uh, where you probably have way more coming at you. That's even pretty high quality than you can potentially handle. Sure. Uh, have you guys thought about, obviously you must know what's coming out next. How far down the pipe are you planning now? Like how far out are you, are you working? So this whole year is booked. Plus like we do 12 games a year and we've got like 18 for this year. Somehow every year we have way more than we're supposed to. And we'll sneak yeah. out a couple games for Black Friday or whatever. Oh, cool. So this year, I think out of the like maybe 18 that we release, we have 17 and one like floating slot that's available if something amazing comes through the door that's like ready to go. Um, next year, we have very few, maybe one or two games. One that we're like looking at and we should be signing, but very little for next year. We just wanted to kind of get to January and then yeah. start booking because we've done in previous years where we booked stuff and then the, the the trends will shift and it's like oh like for example we signed a game right before covid that was a game that you would play while standing in line at like conventions or something like that and it was all in hand and it required crowds and all and then covid hit and it was like oh we can't do that game and then it never like recovered enough to like release that kind of game like it just it feels like you know we're we're past the covid issue of it lines are still a thing but like we just aren't quite there yet but that's one of those things where like the trends shifted so much and then like with covid with solo if we signed a bunch of like two player or three player or four player games and then covid hit we wouldn't have that like solo thing so i'm trying not to get too far ahead of ourselves just so we don't get behind on trends and uh you know have something that we would have to kick back to the designer or something and not be able to release for whatever reason and then with the overlap with uh, Kickstarter, because I imagine Kickstarter sometimes will limit how frequently you can kind of oh, launch yeah. things. So uh, what is the schedule right now? Is it literally every 30 days there's another Kickstarter starting or is it? We haven't, we did 12 in 2016 and then cut it down after that and kind of found our groove at like six to eight. Mm. And we would just release a couple games off of Kickstarter, like directly at our website or whatever. This year, I think we have nine kickstarters planned wow so last year we only did four which i didn't realize until this year i went back and looked at it. it was like how many did we do last year and it was four and it's just because we struggled with like timelines and it, the whole year was like probably our hardest year yet with just like finding our groove from being a small operation to a bigger one and yeah. getting people staffed and training so it was such a hard year but this year we're so far ahead uh hopefully we'll do nine It'll be like three in the backlog as one of them's fulfilling. It's not too much to where we're asking people to, you know, pre-order too many games and haven't gotten any. Like that's a constant concern. Yeah, is we don't want we don't want people waiting. Um, ours are quick. It's like four months, you know, from from when we order them, or when we kickstart to when we can release it. Sometimes it can even be smaller. But uh, yeah, you don't want to. I don't want a backlog of more than like two games. And so the very next title then is what? What's the next one you guys are doing? Uh, so next month we're doing a game found campaign for reprints. So we're bringing back. Okay. It's like it's like um, customer voted. Our game Numsters is coming back, and like Sprawl, uh, not Sprawl, but Skulls of Sedlik like expansions are coming back, along with some like new ones. And then March on Kickstarter is a game called Fantasy Form, which is it's like a spiritual sequel to our solo game uh, Spaceship. Mm -hmm. which is just like a solo space shipping little adventure game, resource management, and like cool story. Um, the designer, I told him 
do a fantasy version. So fantasy form is like, it's different. Like he took all of it back, fixed a lot of things that people have complained about. He got spaceshipped and, and kind of put this whole twist on it. So fantasy form is a solo, like a dungeon crawly kind of game um, with a lot of story resource management. And you're using these um, elements and stuff to fight these big massive forms that are kind of coming at you. Wow, that sounds amazing. So if people want to follow you on your social channels, how do they do that? I'm sure there's one place that they can go. Is it just button yeah. at button shy everywhere? Uh, or? It's it's either button shy or button shy games everywhere. So Twitter's button shy, button shy games on Instagram. I think no, I think it's just button shy. It's either one. Button shy or button shy games. Buttonshygames.com is definitely our website. Uh, patreon.com slash button shy is our subscription service, which is you get a game every month and some extra goodies um that's awesome and that's driving this insanity yeah because it sets the schedule and we have to stick with it the train is run down the tracks and now you're just running to, just to stay on uh, stay yeah because on the... like kickstarter is like all right we're prepping the march game we're fulfilling the october game we're currently doing the january game we're you know getting the art ready for the march game it's just it, it's 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 never ends that's insane but well, I, I mean, I am so happy to see how this thing has turned out for you. And I want to wish you all the best on The Last Lighthouse. I mean, that campaign looks awesome. Artwork looks amazing. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. If people want to check that out, they can go and check it out on Kickstarter. Uh, and I want to wish you all the best in this coming year. Awesome. You too. Thanks. All right, my friend. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.